Friends, as we prepare to hear our scripture readings this morning, uh, today we continue to hear about the growth of the early church and how those early disciples and apostles carried uh, the Easter story and Jesus's message out from Jerusalem uh, through Judea and into Asia Minor. Um, today we're going to hear about the founding of the church in Corinth, and we're going to hear two passages about that. The first is from the Acts of Apostles, where the Apostle Paul, uh, along with uh, his friends Priscilla and Aquila, found the church in Corinth around 50 CE. Um, Corinth is uh, in modern-day Greece. At the time, it was the capital of a Roman province, and it was a major trade center and uh, thoroughfare for people. And so as a result, there were all kinds of people living in the city. There was a lot of uh, ethnic, religious, and cultural diversity, which brought uh, with it great gifts, but also uh, brought with it great divisions as well. And so the second letter that, or second reading that we have is from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, which he writes about um, two and a half years after he leaves that community. And he writes specifically to address uh, some of the issues that have come up in that early church community, including division. And as we'll hear, um, he calls them back to unity and to remember that their common ground is Jesus and that they are called um, to follow the ways of Jesus's love and inclusion. So let us listen for the word of God. Our first reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 18, verses 1 through 4 and 11. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudia had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they worked together. By trade, they were tent makers. Every Sabbath, he would debate in the synagogue and would try to convince Jews and Greeks. Paul stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Our second reading is from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 10 through 25. Now I appeal to you, brothers, sisters, and siblings, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Christus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided, through the foolishness of our proclamation, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. The Word of God for the people of God. Will you join me in prayer? Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, my kids are six and four, and they can always uh, find something to fight about. While deep down I know that they love each other, or I like to think that they do, um, the reality is that we spend a lot of time right now, particularly in quarantine, uh, pulling them apart from each other. That they will fight over whose turn it is uh, to watch a show. They will fight over the injustice when one of them is given a brownie that is slightly smaller uh, than the others. Or they will uh, fight over the constant refrain of, I'm bigger than you, I'm better than you, I got more skills than you. And my spouse and I are always reminding them that, yes, uh, you both have great skills and the older brothers just had a little bit more time to practice them. The fights always get a little bit worse though when they try to pull us in and take sides as parents. Uh, it'll be things like, it's Mama H's night to put me to bed. And they'll be like, no, it's Mama J's night to put me to bed. Or I'm on Mama H's team. No, I'm on Mama J's team. And uh, again, my spouse and I are always reminding them, you know, we are on the same team. That we are a family. And that families love each other. And that families work together. Now, I don't know that there's any record of the Apostle Paul uh, having a family, but when I read the passage today, I just had empathy uh, for him. Because um, here he's writing to this church that he loves, and they have found plenty of things uh, to quarrel about and to argue over. And the argument that arises today is just a whole bunch of cliques where they are fighting over um, which one of their um, leaders or speakers they like the best. So one is like, I love the preacher Apollos. He's the best. And the other's like, no, I'm with Cephas and I'm on Cephas's team. That's Peter. He's the best. Other one's like, no, Paul's the guy. And Paul just writes to basically say, you know what? This is, this is not what we're about. Um, and really, it's, it's true. If left to our own devices, um, often we will find ways to divide. We will find ways to make it about us and them and to try to one-up each other. And for um, the people in Corinth, this was really just the tip of the iceberg. These divisions are really the tip of the iceberg because there are much deeper issues 
um, that come because they have real diversity in their faith community. And as I mentioned in the introduction, um, Corinth was a major trade route and uh, a gathering place uh, for many people. And so there was a lot of um, cultural, religious, ethnic, socioeconomic diversity. And uh, you had Jews there who knew all the Jewish traditions. You had uh, Greeks and Romans who had a, a great interest in the philosophical traditions of the day. You had people with lots of Roman pedigree. You had immigrants from other parts of the world in Asia Minor coming in. You had rich people and poor people. And everything in that community was stratified. And the problem was that um, in the Corinthian church, those divisions in society were being replicated in the church. And so those who were more educated or had a better pedigree often looked down on those who weren't as well educated or um, the rich in the church community would be treating um, the poor uh, poorly in the community. And so um, that is the deeper issue that is going on and that Paul will be talking about as we continue to work through this letter, which we will in, uh, over the next few weeks. And so what Paul does in the opening part of that letter um, and what he'll do throughout this letter as we continue to look at it is he's going to remind them that they are on the same team, um, that, that one of them or one group of them is not better than the other, that they're not the stratified group, but actually they are called um, to live in a different way and to remember that they have common ground. And that common ground is Jesus. And he specifically points to, um, to Jesus on the cross, um, the one who is self-giving and self-emptying, to Jesus as the model of love and inclusion, someone who was always looking out for those on the margins, someone who um, fought for the vulnerable um, even to the very end of his life, who was willing to suffer in order to be in solidarity um, with those who were on the lowest rungs of society. And so um, to be a follower of, of Jesus, at least as Paul understands it, is to really live in this different way, to not adopt the values of the culture, but rather to live in this way that models um, Jesus' love and his command to love a neighbor as uh, yourself. And so he calls them, you know, there shall be no divisions among you, but that you shall be of one mind and of one purpose. And that doesn't mean to be uniform or to believe exactly the same thing, but really to be united in that purpose of love and living out uh, the love of God. Well, it's not a hard leap uh, to think about how this would connect to our lives today when we are um, a culture that is just ripe with divisions. Um, we have lots of us and them categories, whether that's Democrat and Republican, uh, conservative and progressive, politicians and public health officials, uh, black and white, citizen and immigrant, uh, open things back up, keep things locked down. It's really easy um, to point fingers at others or to puff ourselves up or to get entrenched in our own camps. And to forget that as human beings, and particularly for those of us who call ourselves Christians, um, that we are all on the same team and that we are really called um, to live out the values of love and inclusion. And in many ways, they stand in stark contrast to the values and the stratifications that we see in our world. 
If we look at uh, the wisdom of our world, or at least our American world, um, the values that it espouses are things like look out for number one, um, the value of might makes right, uh, the value of if you work hard enough, um, you can make it in this world. And yet what the value of um, the gospel is, is different. I mean, the value that the world has is sort of um, what it calls wise is foolishness to God. Uh, but the value of the gospel is what God calls wisdom. And that's uh, the value that says we look out for each other. Um, that every life is valuable and made in the image of God. That peace and love are what make the world right. And that we need to lift each other up. This may seem weak um, in the eyes of the world, but it is the hope that we have. And it's the message that we have to offer the world. And it's the message that will, in the end, as our scripture says, uh, save our lives and those around us. And so what it means, really, is that we are called to live in a different way and to seek the unity, um, equality, and justice for all. Now, one of the things that we have um, seen in this time of the coronavirus um, is really how stratified our society is and how entrenched many of us are in our own camps. Um, but also that there are ways to find unity and there are ways that we can remember that we really are on the same team. Now, the divisions in the world are obvious, as is the stratification in our society. And we see that because um, we are seeing how certain lives are privileged over others, particularly in this time of coronavirus. And we see it in the ways that um, the African-American communities, Latinx communities, and indigenous communities are disproportionately, disproportionately affected uh, by the coronavirus. And um, this week at Respond to Racism, um, one of the presenters really honed in on the Navajo community, which was just fascinating and depressing, honestly, to, to hear about in the sense that um, now, uh, as, of, as of today, um, the Navajo reservation has the fifth highest uh, death rate in the United States, despite the fact that they are um, a fraction of the population and have less density than many of the other states. And there's a whole host of reasons for this, um, but particularly around a lot of structural inequality, that they have underfunded hospitals, um, underfunded Indian healthcare, that there's a long history of pre-existing conditions, things like um, diabetes, coronary heart disease, which are actually results of the diet that um, white settlers introduced um, to the native populations. And then there's a lot of, um, a real lack of infrastructure um, in, in that reservation and others, things like running water and electricity. And all of this um, contributes and compounds um, then COVID-19. And so I think the question for us becomes, um, how do we understand ourselves, that we are all on the same team? How do we understand that our lives are connected? And it's not just simply statistics that we shake our head at and, and say, oh, that's too bad, and we give thanks that we're safer here. Um, but rather, how can we recognize our common humanity and to really seek um, to love all um, as we love ourselves? And, and particularly as people of faith, how can we um, advocate and agitate and educate 
and donate. And I think this is also where we have some opportunities to live out this idea of unity. And as I was reading more about what's going on in the Navajo um, reservation, um, I was uh, so interested to read that actually the, the Navajo um, reservation official said that this week they got a donation of about $500,000 um, from Ireland. And that these funds um, were given as a sign of appreciation because back in 1847, um, when Ireland was going through the Great Famine, indigenous communities here in the United States raised about $170, which is about $5,000 in modern currency, uh, to send to Ireland to help them through their time. And so it's just a beautiful story of the ways that we remember that we are interconnected and um, that it matters that we are unified and that we hold each other up and help each other. Also in the news this week um, was another heart-wrenching story of uh, an unarmed African-American man um, being shot by uh, two white men. And you may have seen this story in the news that was it was breaking this week. It actually took place at the end of February, but it's just coming to light now. And a 25-year-old um, named Ahmad Arbery uh, in Georgia was um, killed by two white men who um, suspected him of being a robber, even though all he was doing was uh, jogging in his neighborhood. And so... Um, the men uh, had not been arrested up to at least Thursday of this week. And um, part of that is because uh, at least it's alleged that they have deep ties to um, the police department in that area. And so we again see the way that certain lives are privileged over others. And that as people of faith, um, it continues to be um, on us to remember that uh, we are called to be unified, to remember that uh, God makes all of us in God's image and that we are connected and that we have to lift up the lives of all and stand up, uh, particularly for those black and brown people um, that continue to be, to be hurt and um, to be treated as um, second-class citizens. It, of course, will take people continuing to come together and to stand up and to speak out. And um, this is work that doesn't just happen overnight. Um, it work that emerges over time as we um, try to love our neighbors, as we try to understand our own privilege, our own blind spots, as the, we try to recognize the ways that we are complicit, even in the ongoing status and stratification of our society, and as we try to live in a way that is different um, from the status quo. And so the question really becomes, how do we do this? Um, how do we live this out? And what does this look like? And um, there's a couple things I think that we can take um, with us as a guide. One is that it means reaching out um, to the people in our midst. And I think Paul really talks about this in his letter when he he basically says, you know, you all do have common ground, even though your experiences are different, even though you're coming from different backgrounds, um, you have something bigger that ties you together. And it's important for you to respect each other and honor each other and get to know each other in this community. 
And so for us, I think it starts very much in one-to-one -one relationships as we get to know people, um, either within our church community or within just our own communities where we live and work and with neighbors, um, that we get to know people who are, who are different from us, especially, who have different experiences, um, that we ask them, um, what's life like for you? You know, what, what are your fears? What are your hopes? Um, and, and to try to find that common ground because we know that the world um, changes one relationship at a time. And, you know, particularly in this time of coronavirus, we have opportunities to do this in new ways, even just with the neighbors that live right around us. And I know I'm particularly um, feeling challenged by this because I have a couple neighbors that that I have an affinity with and we've already established relationships, but I have a couple more that have been harder to get to know. Um, and so to, to be more intentional about um, reaching out to them is a way that we can build unity and community um, in our society. I think another way that we can work for this kind of unity that Paul is talking about is in um, supporting um, as a church and as individuals, those organizations that bolster communities on the margins. And uh, whether that's Black Lives Matter or the Navajo Nation or even those that are closer to home. And as a church, just this month, um, we have sent mission dollars to a number of local organizations like the Virginia Garcia Health Center, which um, provides health care um, to low income and um, to vulnerable communities in Washington and Yamhill County, and in particular to migrant workers and seasonal farm workers. Um, we've also given money to the North by Northeast Community Health Center, which uh, really works for African-American health care in Portland. Uh, we gave money uh, this month also to respond to racism as they continue to try to eradicate racism in LO, and also to the Southern Poverty Law Center, which works to promote um, tolerance and justice across our country and to try to um, stop hate groups and hate crimes around our country. And so to the extent that we can continue to support these organizations, um, it also just provides that sense of connectedness and a reminder that we're on the same team. We can continue to educate ourselves about um, systemic injustice, and there's so much being written right now that we can find online, and also our Justice Action Team will be providing some opportunities for us as a church to explore um, some of those uh, larger injustices, and later this month we'll have an opportunity to view a movie that talks about immigration and systemic racism, so stay tuned uh, for more information about that. And of course, there's also a very practical way that we live out um, that unity and love and that we're doing right now as a church. And that's even just by staying home and being safe uh, when we do go out. One of the things that I learned in studying about what's going on in the Navajo Nation is that one of the instigators there was actually a church service in early March um, that helped spread it around the reservation. And so um, to the extent that we can care for each other and care for our um, siblings in faith and just in our world. Um, we do that in part by staying home. And it's going to be a while, I think, before we gather together in, in person as, as a church, as we really seek to care for the most vulnerable um, in our community. And so in this time of COVID-19, um, it's really an opportunity for us to 
to seek this unity, to remember our interconnectedness, um, to remind ourselves that we are called to live in a different way um, than what our culture promotes, and to really work for the love and the inclusion and the justice for all. And we have um, examples of ways that is happening in our world, and we have examples in, in our faith forebears. And as we close today, I just want to share uh, a story of one more person, a woman named Anna Jarvis. Uh, she is a Methodist woman in Grafton, West Virginia, who was alive in the late 1800s and early 1900s, and she is credited with founding um, the, the modern-day observance of Mother's Day. And Anna Jarvis was inspired by her own mother, uh, Anna Reeves Jarvis, who organized Mother's Day work clubs in the 1850s in their um, region of West Virginia. And the clubs did things like provide medicines for the poor, inspected milk for children, provided nursing care for the sick, and ran shelters for children with tuberculosis. And when the Civil War broke out, um, Anna Reeves Jarvis called together her clubs and asked them to make a pledge that friendship and um, goodness would not be a casualty of the war. And so throughout the war, these women nursed soldiers uh, from both sides and saved many lives. Um, after the war, uh, she became a peacemaker and she organized uh, what were called Mother's Friendships Days to bring together uh, mothers and families from both the North and the South who had been torn apart by war. And then later in 1907, um, her daughter, Anna Jarvis, um, organized the first official Mother's Day in Grafton, West Virginia, so that her mom's work of peace and unity would not be forgotten. And so um, that was later picked up by Julia Ward Howe and others. But that start of Mother's Day was really about unity. And it was about peace. And it was about caring for our neighbors and remembering that love binds us across difference. And so as we um, continue to move into this time of um, coronavirus, as we continue to try to figure out and live into what it means to be the church, um, may we continue um, to seek out that unity. May we remember that we are all on the same team, the team of love, the team of Jesus, the team of humanity, and that we are called to serve and to seek unity and peace and justice for all. Amen.